Good morning. My name is Sarah. I'd love for you to look along with me as I read from Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 1 and going to verse 17. And another somewhat selfish little plug, the Deeper podcast starts back this week and I write the questions, but I would love it if you could write those questions. So if you can think of anything while we're reading and while you're listening, please let me know after the sermon. I would love some help. Thanks very much. All right, Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralysed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, Shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfil what was spoken through through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, If you're new, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here. It's uh, great to be back after uh, being away the last couple of Sundays on leave. Um, But as we crack into this new year and and start in our series in Matthew, it's great to be back with you. As Ken flagged, uh, one further announcement before I pray and we look at this passage together. Um, Our home groups are really important. They're really the engine room of our church, and I know many of you are in them. We have something like 225 230 people across the church in home groups each week. There are 15 home groups related to our two morning services. 14 of them are hanging up there because one of them is not going to start until term two this year. Um, But if you're in a home group already, that's great. But this may be a time where you want to um, change groups or let people know about something if you haven't been in touch uh, with your leader. But in particular, those who are not currently in a home group, we would love you to join one to have people that you meet with each week apart from Sunday so they can be praying for you, so that you can be looking at the Bible together and growing. Uh, key plank in our growth as a disciple is really meeting with other Christians and being spurred on in our faith. So 
If you're not in a home group, um, now is a great chance. Get in on the ground floor as the year starts. All of them are up on the notice board. You can just write your name. There's um, extra lines uh, for those that have got space in their groups. You can just add your name to the home group list and the home group leader will be in touch with you in the next week and they'd love to welcome you into their group. So please think about that if you're not in one already. It'd be great to get part of it, and you can grab the booklets, as has been mentioned, uh, out in the foyer. But let me pray for us, and then we're going to have a look at this passage together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word given to us. We acknowledge it's a great privilege to have it, and yet it's a great challenge to us as well because uh, we hear your voice, and it often cuts across uh, how we think and act. And as we look at this passage this morning and this section in Matthew's Gospel, which says a lot about the authority of Jesus, uh, help us to respond rightly. Uh, Help us now to be moved by your Spirit, uh, to live in a way uh, that pleases. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Australians have mixed views when it comes to responding to authority. Traditionally, we've been renowned, right, as being fairly anti-authoritarian. It's argued that the convict roots of Australian society makes us rebellious at heart. And if you go to an Ashes cricket test, the English supporters, known as the Barmy Army, are happy to remind you of those roots. One of their favourite songs is sung to the Beatles tune, Yellow Submarine. Let me teach it to you. It goes like this. You all live in a convict colony, a convict colony, a convict colony. Now, they'll go on for hours singing that tune. Um, It's offensive, but it's funny at the same time. Um, But it captures something, I think, of the essence of our response to authority and and the roots of European society, at least in Australia. But there have been recent surveys since 2018 that suggest that uh, Australians actually um, toe the line and respond to authority far more than we give ourselves credit for. There was actually a survey in 2018 that showed that there's a growing belief amongst some Australians that a more authoritarian or strongman government would actually be good that that would get things done in this country. A third of Australians said they were open to that. And the group that was most in favour, to my surprise, were those under 35 years of age. And then others point to our obedience to authorities um, during the COVID pandemic. Australians were pretty good, actually, at following rules, seeking to toe the line and do what was being asked. But I think we'd still all argue that the majority of Australians are still today uh, not particularly in favour of authority. We certainly, the majority of us, like democratic processes with all their weaknesses, but we're generally anti-authoritarian. We don't don't like being told what to do. We don't like submitting to anyone or anything. And of course, we could argue that that's the default stance of the human condition that that's not just an Australian thing, that regardless of a person's heritage, this is a heart response. We especially don't like listening to people if we feel that they're not practising what they're preaching, what they're telling us to do. But of course, all of that is a struggle when we come to the Bible, because when we come to a Christian worldview, 
The anti-authoritarian approach is challenged. Uh, God calls us to submit to government authorities, uh, to submit to our bosses at work, to submit to each other. Above all, he calls us to submit every single aspect of our lives to the lordship of Jesus. And our sinful nature kicks against that. We find submitting to Christ's rule difficult, even if we're a believer. Well, today we start a series in Matthew 8 to 12, where the issue of Christ's authority is front and centre. And this section that we're looking at is clearly linked to the Sermon on the Mount that precedes it in chapters 5 to 7 that we looked at last year. When we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, we get these verses in 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. It's interesting, isn't it? If that's what they've been hearing as they've heard the three chapters of five to seven that we considered last year, then there's going to be expectations that great deeds will follow. The crowds had certainly heard someone speak with an authoritative, I say to you. Jesus had not spoken as one of their teachers of the law that just quoted other authorities, never actually had their own opinion. Rather, Jesus had claimed that he had come to fulfill the whole Old Testament, that everything in the Bible pointed to him. I mean, these were revolutionary, astounding words for a Jewish audience. And with such big talk, the crowd would be expecting him to walk the walk, to have matching deeds. But if he did, and that's what we're going to see in chapters 8 to 12, well, then how would people respond? How would they respond to this authority in word and deed? So that's the big question I want us to consider this morning. How should we respond to Christ's authority? How should we respond to Christ's authority? Two answers to that question. First is this, by recognising his power and asking him to act. Notice again what is stated in verses 2 to 4. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So in verses 2 to 4, uh, we have the first of three healings in this section. Jesus deals with leprosy, a skin disease which was greatly feared by the Jews because it was basically incurable in that day. And as a result, if somebody was cured, it was considered an unmistakable mark of the intervention of God. Those who contracted the disease were forced to live apart. They were isolated from human contact and touch, except for other lepers. Jesus himself understood the healing of leprosy to be a mark of the dawning of the messianic age. He'll later say that in Matthew 11, we'll see in a few weeks. And so this first interaction provides a powerful example of Jesus' authority at work. But notice how the leper responds to Jesus. 
Uh, we don't know uh, how he got to him, but you can imagine that he was calling out, unclean, unclean, or ringing a bell as they were required to do, and that the crowd would have just parted like the Red Sea as a result. And when he got to Jesus, he knelt down in submission before him. Did you notice that? And said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. It's interesting, the wording here. He doesn't insist that he be healed. Interestingly, he doesn't even explicitly ask to be healed. He simply expresses his belief that if Jesus wants to heal him, he can. He recognizes Christ's power and he asks him to act. And Jesus responds in verse 3 and he's instantly cured. And, of course, Jesus' word would have been enough. Uh, We'll see that in the next healing. But notice here that Matthew states at the start of verse 3 that Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. He didn't have to do that. Why did he do that? The Old Testament forbade anyone from touching someone with leprosy, Leviticus 14. A leper was unclean. If you touched them, you became ceremonially unclean. You could not go to the temple or the synagogue or anything like that. You had to stay away from people for a time. But Jesus puts out his hand and touches the unclean. And instead of becoming unclean himself, he makes the man holy or clean. Only God could have such authority. So why is it then, in this amazing moment where there's a crowd observing, that Jesus does not want this demonstration of his authority and the man's submission, right submission to him, to be shared with others in verse 4? Well, Matthew doesn't make the reason clear for us here. But we have parallel accounts, as we often do in Mark and Luke, and they suggest that Jesus is seeking to discourage the idea that he's primarily a wonder worker who's simply at the whim of the enthusiastic crowds. The people can just come up and ask him for anything and he'll just dispense whatever they want. The parallel accounts actually show that the healed leper disobeyed Jesus' instruction. He spread the news of his cure freely with the result that Jesus' ministry was hampered by even larger crowds And this forced him often to remain outside of towns in wilderness areas. In Mark chapter 1, in the midst of the healings which we're considering here in Matthew 8, Jesus actually stole away from the crowds to a solitary place. And when his disciples found him the next morning and said, everybody's looking for you, he said, well, I want to go elsewhere because I've come to preach. People need to hear the good news. And so the man's response to Jesus, notice, his response of submission is partial. He doesn't obey his instructions. What's the application of this first section as we think about it for ourselves, this demonstration of the authority of Jesus? Well, we can see, firstly, that it's not dependent on the will or even the obedience of people. Or he wouldn't have performed this miracle He obviously knew what the man would do, despite his warning. The will of the people is often fickle, right? We see that at times in the Gospels. They're more interested in healings, being fed, having Roman authority removed. Rarely are they coming saying, I want to repent and follow you, Jesus. I want to be your disciple. 
Oh, yeah, there are exceptions in that way, but it is the exception. It's about what they think they can get. Their eager submission of their whole life to Jesus is not at the top of the list. That's interesting, isn't it? Of course, this type of interest in Jesus can be true of us today. You know, our interest in following Jesus can simply be about the physical help that he will provide in my life right now. Indeed, some churches think that preaching, come to Jesus and he will make you healthy, wealthy and wise, is the way to go. It certainly attracts big crowds, but not serious followers. Jesus is not interested in attracting such crowds. He actually goes out of his way to avoid them in the Gospels. As we'll see in the second half of Matthew 8 next week, Christianity is far more demanding than that. There is a cost to following Jesus. Jesus is going to call you and you're to follow him on his terms, not the other way around. And so Jesus' healings aren't designed to draw crowds to have more people putting out their hand, they're to point to his authority as the Christ, the chosen one, and to invite people into true submission to him. Which brings me to a second answer to this question. How should we respond to Christ's authority? Secondly, by recognising it and demonstrating faith and service. By recognising it and demonstrating faith and true service. Notice again what happens next. Verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. In this second section, we have another healing. This time, Jesus' authority over paralysis is being demonstrated. A centurion comes to Jesus in Capernaum. He raises his servant's suffering. This servant was probably his only family. Now, Roman centurions were not allowed to have a family during their 20 years of service in the army. And so he's concerned that his servant be made well. But the greatness of his concern is outmatched by the greatness of his faith. Because when Jesus asks about going to him, the centurion basically says to Jesus, no. He doesn't feel that he's deserving of a visit from Jesus. We need to remember that centurions did not normally treat people from their conquered nations with great respect. But here is a leader of soldiers, a leader of a hundred soldiers, treating Jesus as if he were of such a rank in the Roman army, so exalted that he shouldn't trouble himself to even enter his home, that he as a centurion is a nobody. Well, there's submission. And he explains the basis of his faith in Christ's authoritative word by appealing to the Roman military hierarchy of which he's a part. He says, if I order a soldier to do something, it's the same as Rome telling him to do something. Caesar may as well be speaking because if he doesn't do it, he dies. When I say stuff, things happen. 
So you just say the word, Jesus, because you're all powerful and we won't need to do anything more. There is faith. His word is enough. This is a step up clearly from the response of the Jewish leper in the first episode. Jesus himself is amazed at this man's faith in verse 10. Is that incredible? Christ's fellow Jews were steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. They had enjoyed centuries of covenant relationship with God. Jesus seems to be inferring that if anyone should rightly approach him with submissive faith, then it should be a fellow Jew, and yet here is a Gentile. More than that, a Roman oppressor who rightly approaches him and displays such faith. Jesus naturally responds in verse 13. He heals the man's servant with a word at that very moment. But this astounding, this astounding example leads Jesus to make a really strong statement about the kingdom of heaven. You notice that in verses 11 and 12. He goes to an aside here. There's a whole crowd listening as he says this. And he says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> that's, that's a grenade in a Jewish audience. Jesus insists that many will come from the east and the west into the kingdom, which is pictured here as a feast. And the east and the west is, is just a general way of referring to Gentiles from everywhere, from all around. And the picture is a banquet that's sort of picking up the imagery of Isaiah 25. It's a time of joy and celebration. The kingdom coming in all its fullness, the arrival of the new creation. And Jesus is stating that many Gentiles will join with the great Jewish patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And in this context, it must be that those Gentiles join in because they have responded to Jesus with the kind of faith that the centurion has just displayed. Of course, not everyone recognises Jesus' authority. And so Jesus states that even some who you would think naturally belong in the kingdom, that is the Jews who have lived under the old covenant promises and the law for centuries, they are the ones, many of whom will reject him and be shut out. They're pictured as approaching this great banquet, the banquet lit up with joy and festivity, and shockingly they're refused admission. They're thrown outside into the darkness. And the idea clearly from Jesus is not that there'll be no Jews in heaven, no Jews at the banquet. After all, the patriarchs are all Jews. Jesus is a Jew. All his earliest followers were. But what Jesus is clearly insisting here is that there is no reserved seating in heaven. It doesn't matter what a person's heritage is. An individual's faith, their submissive response to Jesus is the key ingredient. That proves decisive. The alternative, of course, if you reject Jesus and place no faith in him, well, Jesus describes it in horrifying terms. It's, it's a scene of suffering, a scene of utter despair. You see, the same authority of Jesus that proves such a great comfort to the eyes of faith 
now engenders terror in the merely religious. And the truth, of course, is that this is not just a challenge to Jews. Surely it's a critique of Western Christendom, which often doesn't like Jesus the judge today or the wrath of God, let alone the reality of hell. And in broad terms, the merely religious, as many Jews were, is rampant in Western Christianity, with many countries having a strong Christian heritage that sees countless people think that they are all right with God because they know someone that's a Christian or they occasionally go to church. In many ways, we have become the new Jews who think that we have reserved seating. You know the idea, I'll pay my respects to God at Easter and Christmas. You know, my family have a link. You know, I was born into a Christian family. It's so popular, isn't it, and easy today to believe in the love of God, but it's a very difficult thing to accept God's holiness and the call for complete submission to Jesus. Our society generally prefers a partial Jesus, a domesticated Jesus, not one who can command or demand anything of us that we are not already prepared to give. Jesus is saying that there are lots of nice people, lots of outwardly religious people who are heading for hell. Notice that Jesus does not set up a contrast between Hitler and some Billy Graham type figure. No, there are those with faith in him who come and bow the knee and submit. And then there are good religious people who have a heritage of the scriptures who are thrown into hell. They are the two groups. I remember speaking to a lady in Richmond about 25 years ago. Um, I was on a beach mission team. We were doing a door knock, as such teams often do, in preparation for going to beach mission that year. And we had like a survey form with some questions, spiritual questions, to engage people at their doorstep. And one of the questions was about, you know, how do you think you'll go to heaven? What's the way to heaven? And she said, well... You know, I basically live a good life, and if there's life after death, then I'll be right. And when we explained that Christians didn't believe that the Bible actually taught a good life would be good enough, that even attending church or doing other things wouldn't get you to heaven, um, she casually replied, well, you know, they can believe what they like. I, I don't just do good things to go to heaven I do nice things that I'm comfortable with, but I have my own understanding of spiritual things. Now, the truth is, there are millions of people like her in our country. Millions. People who have decided to have God, to have eternal life in heaven on their terms. That is very dangerous ground to be standing on. We need to make sure that we are not merely outwardly religious people. There is a huge warning here from Jesus about whether we're seriously following him or not. In the final section from verses 14 to 17, I think what we get is an extension of something of what's been going on there. We, we see a third healing 
and then a summary of many other feeling, uh, healings as people turn up to the doorstep at the house he's in in Capernaum. But we have the healing of Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. And unlike the first two healings, Jesus doesn't even say a word. Well, there's nothing recorded at least. He simply touches her hand and the fever is gone. And she gets up. And what is her response? Well, she immediately waits on Jesus. She serves. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus' authority is such that he simply touches her, and her response is that she serves. I think we think we're meant to understand that genuine faith, as the centurion had just demonstrated, also needs to express itself in service of Jesus. In verse 17, Matthew um, quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 4, as he talks about Jesus bearing our diseases. But, of course, that famous passage points to Jesus also bearing our sin. He doesn't only have the power to heal physically, but also spiritually, to give us life eternal. So what is the right response to the one who can create life and recreate, bring spiritual life? In 2007, uh, the expert evaluation report from the UNESCO World Heritage Committee um, came in on the Sydney Opera House. They said this about the Opera House. It stands by itself as one of the indisputable masterpieces of human creativity, not only in the 20th century, but in the history of humankind. That's a big statement, isn't it? Maybe you agree. Uh, Jon Utzon was a relatively unknown 38-year-old Dane until January the 29th, 1957, when his entry was announced the winner of the international competition for a national opera house at Bennelong Point, Sydney. And from 1964, the precast rib vaults of the shells began to be erected to deliver Utzon's vision. However, Utzon had um, spectacular plans, not only for the exterior, but also for the interior of the shells that would be completed. But he was unable to realise that part of his design. As you may know, in mid-1965, a new New South Wales government was elected and the Minister of Works began questioning the designs of Utzon and eventually stopped payments to him, forcing him to withdraw as the chief architect in February of 1966. And there were protests. And despite protests and marches through the streets of Sydney, led by leading architect of Sydney, Harry Seidler, the New South Wales government never reinstated him. Uh, Jorn Utzon left the country at the end of April 1966 with his family, never to return never to see his masterpiece in the flesh. I think we can easily sense the dishonour to Utzon, you know, as the creator, the designer is spurned. I mean, I wasn't even born, but when I reread the story, I'm, I'm embarrassed, you know, that we did that. It seems incredible. The disrespect, it's, it's mind-boggling. So then, imagine the weight 
the weight of the offence when we view Christ as someone not worth listening to, the designer that we might feel free to ignore. See, this passage is putting a choice in front of us. We need to respond to Christ's authority with submission, with faith, with service, as the leper, the centurion, Peter's mother-in-law, reveal in their responses. We can be part of the great banquet in heaven if we've placed our trust in Christ, the one shown to have all authority, through not only his words but his miraculous actions and ultimately, of course, his resurrection from the dead. I guess my challenge to you this morning is, if you are just being merely religious, piggybacking on other people's faith, your friends' trust, then realise that this is not enough. This is no ticket to the banquet. This is a refusal at the entry. Rather, we have to acknowledge Christ's authority and ultimately his payment of our sin on the cross. We've got to bow our knee to the one who bore our sin, who laid down his life for you and for me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and the clarity of his words and actions, for his call to respond to him rightly. Help us to learn from the examples of those who encountered him. Help us to be those who clearly turn in submission and faith and who respond in service. Help us by your spirit, we pray, to that end this week. For we ask it in Jesus' name.